0: Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us right now is Nels Anderson. He's a game designer, uh, one of many living in Vancouver. Uh, He recently founded his own studio. It's called Caledonia. Uh, Before that, he helped create the games Firewatch and Mark of the Ninja, which you may know. Uh, He moved to Vancouver in 2005, from Wyoming, which is kind of cool. Welcome, Nell. So glad you could join us. Of
1: course. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: So we're talking about uh, the title of this segment is Millennials Feeling the Pinch. And I think it's re- it, it's a really important topic because uh, you represent a whole group of young people who I'll call young people, uh, living in Vancouver. I know, but right. You're like, you're younger than me. So that's how come you (laughs) get that. You get that title. Um, but who are doing incredibly well 2 income family, children, all of that, but living in one of the most expensive cities in the country, depending on where you are, um, it's so interesting, and that's why I want to start with giving us a bit of a snapshot to your current situation.
1: Yeah, so um, my wife and I have been married since 2009, um, just a little bit over a year ago. We had our first child, uh, the, boy, the boy is uh, 18 months old. Um, we live uh, in, in downtown in the West End. That's where we lived for like the last 10 years since we started living together. Okay. Um yeah, obviously, we, <laughs> there is no way we could own where we live.
0: Right. Uh,
1: so we we just rent an apartment that's b- barely big enough for us and uh, had a baby and a dog. So Nels, would
2: you mind sharing, you know, just some of the literally dollars and cents is, is the, the name of the show here. So the apartment that you've got, what what's the rent for something like that?
1: Yeah, the, um, the two bedroom apartment. So the rent is twenty five hundred a month, which gasps sounds so expensive. Is actually less than the average, yeah. two bedroom like, and change. Um, and it's definitely the kind of like we've been here. We were moved in here specifically uh, to you know have an extra room for a baby to be in. <laughs> right. um, and so we're yeah you know, we're not constantly, but at least there is some. Background radiation in our heads of like if we were, you know, told to leave the apartment because the owner sold it to somebody else and they're going to move in here, um, we don't know what we'd do because finding another two bedroom place that we could afford <laughs> anywhere near where either of us work uh, would be quite challenging.
0: See, and, and that's the key, right? Because so many people, I mean, that's the, the, the good news and bad news about Vancouver, that you can live right in the heart of the city and work right in the heart of the city. And that's that's a lovely situation to be in, right? But if you're just there renting, uh, you're at the whim of a whole bunch of forces that you have no control over.
1: Exactly. Um, and even, you know, like the, like, wow, it's a nice, To go to to live downtown is very accessible and all that kind of stuff. It's like we wouldn't actually save that much money if we lived, you know, way out in Surrey or something, right? We'd just be trading off like we'd knock, maybe you know, maybe four or five hundred dollars off our rent, um, but that's immediately just getting put back into the cost of gas because we have to drive everywhere. And my wife's going to need a bus pass to get home to, to get to and from work. So the amount of like actual savings we'd have, even if we tried to live cheaper. Um, and still even be anywhere vaguely close to our work, is there isn't really that much of a gulf there.
0: Got it. Now, can, uh, now I don't have in front of me what your wife does, Nels. Uh,
1: she actually also works in the game industry. Okay. <laughs> um, she didn't originally do that when we met, but she does it now. Uh, her focus is on, um, like, customer-facing support and community management and stuff like that. She works at a place called uh, Eastside Games.
0: Okay. And uh, uh, sort of a, a current situation, uh, there's large tech companies wanting to find new locations or expand locations of where they are already in North America. And Vancouver's way up on the list if they're not here already. And nine times out of 10, that's where they want to be. They want to be within the city of Vancouver. So if you want to work for those, and they need folks like you and your wife, right, they're in desperate need of them, uh, you all want to be in the city, Right. Yeah.
1: Um, well, I mean, even somewhat related, that, that's absolutely true because, you know, you just want to be able to get to work. Um, but also part of the challenge, actually, with the local high tech industry, whatever we want to call it, is recruitment is actually extremely difficult because, mm-hmm. in general, the wages in Vancouver are a lot lower than they are in other places in Canada and certainly lower than, like, anywhere in the U.S. Yeah. that has a big tech center. Um and the cost of living is so much higher that, like, tr- trying to, you know, recruit and hire people because, like, the, the skill sets you offer, you need to kind of do, to do the stuff that we do are super specialized, right? So we're not pulling from a talent pool of, like, hundreds of thousands of people. It may be like, there are a few hundred people who are currently available that know how to do this work. Right. Um, And essentially asking them, it's like, well, yeah, sure, you could take a different offer in Seattle and make, you know, twice as much money and have your cost of living – but you could also come here.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, and it's like that's, that's, that's not an offer that many people are going to leap at. Um, so it's both challenging for people to, to just you know, who are already living here to, 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 to succeed and grow their own businesses, but it's also very challenging to, to recruit and bring in other people as well.
0: Got it. So, when did you first? So, you've been in your place for 10 years now. Uh, when uh, did not you? The,
1: not, not the same place. Not the <laughs> we same moved, place. We moved, we moved in here two years
0: ago. Okay. So, but within the downtown core? Yeah. Okay. So, when did you start to know or feel the impact of the, of the housing market that we're all so well aware of here in the city and, and lower yeah. mainland?
1: Yeah, well, it was actually when we were when we were evicted from one apartment because that's wow. classic <laughs> situation. The owner sold it, and then the new owners were like, oh, yeah, we're going to live here now. Uh, You've got your three months. Get out. Yeah. Um, of course, and then we would have had to leave, like, four days after Christmas.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so that was great. Um, and then when we were looking at new places, like, for basically the exact same square footage, you know, the exact same location, the exact same amenities, it went for – it added, like – $600 a month to our rent for, like, effectively the exact same apartment. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was not great. And, and then when we moved over here, because we had not need to get the extra bedroom for the baby, then it was like, you know, another is $800 a month wow. above what we've been paying before. Um, and that's the situation that, like, it's it's definitely kind of this this tar pit, right? Like, you know, my wife and I, We finished undergrad we both have degrees i actually have a master's degree as well um like we came out of school with relatively little debt which you could do you know in the early 2000s yeah back in the day yeah yeah um well you know we worked very hard to zero all that out so we have no debt at this point at all in any flavor but also it's almost impossible for us to save right like at our current rate of savings you know we'll have enough money not to buy a place enough money for a down payment uh, sometime between when we're like fifty-five
2: and sixty. Wow, Nelson, and you're clearly you know meticulous. You've run all the numbers. You have figured out your commuting costs with a lot of people, which a lot of people don't do. Um, so, on a reasonable saving rate, which I'm sure you, you made some reasonable assumptions, you'll be retired by the time you can get into the housing market pretty well.
1: I don't know if people in my generation will ever retire. I suspect we will <laughs> yeah. just work until we die. You'll be you'll um, be traditional
2: retirement age. Let's say that. Yeah. There you
1: go. So let's yeah. go with that. Yeah. So that's like the yeah. trap, right? Where you know. Even even 15, 20 years ago, like you could pay your rent on a place and still be like socking enough other money away that then you can put a down payment on a place so that at least you're not paying rent into, into nothing. You were paying it into your own mortgage instead. But now that's that's effectively impossible unless you just stay at home living with your parents for a decade or whatever. Right,
0: which lo- which lots of people yeah, do, right? right? Sure. Lots of people but, do.
1: So, a, a, well, I mean, my parents don't live here, and Tila's parents are way out in the suburbs. And also, it's like, oh, hey, we're going to be a family with a baby. But how about we also live in your basement?
0: Exactly. <laughs> that's <laughs> not so,
1: the life I want for myself or our child.
0: No, I get it. I get it. So, how Nels, how do you... Um, I don't know if stressful is the right word to use, but it must be a thing that weighs on you um, all the time for you and your wife, weighs on you that idea that you are kind of always on the edge. You never know quite what's around the corner, and yet you're well-educated, well-paid, or reasonably well-paid for the jobs that you do. Um, how do you deal with that kind of emotionally in terms of, you know, not, not becoming overwhelmingly depressed? <coughs>
1: Uh, you just make a, a fundamental decision to not think about it. <laughs> That's about it, um, because yeah, it's 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 both frustrating and yeah, completely un- unstable. Where it's like things could happen to our housing situation, which is you know kind of <laughs> the letter in some ways, literally and also metaphorically, the bedrock of our lives. And those those decisions are completely out of our hands, right? Like if our owner sells this place to some investor tomorrow. There's nothing, there's nothing at all we can do about it. Um, so you just kind of have to deal with it and just be like, well, we can't control that either way. So
0: right. Soldier on.
1: There we go. I, yeah, I mean, there's, there's nothing you can do. It just sort of is not <laughs> just sort of a bummer.
0: Nels,
2: what do you think um, people could do to address the issue here? What, what do you think you know, from an individual who might be you know, saying, well, this is a housing crisis and people aren't listening, what, what could individuals be doing if they're listening?
1: I mean, a lot of it is, you know, th- this is an issue that has been a long time in the making and was built by a lot of inaction by policymakers who have the ability to regulate this, right? Um, so it's there, there's there's not there's not going to be any silver bullet to deal with this, but it's going to require a lot of concerted action on you know all three levels of government, you know, the municipality, the province, and and the federal government, of course. Um, and the thing is, like, you know, I. I guess I'm more politically engaged than most of my peers, but every single time I talk to my MLA or someone on council or something about this stuff, they're always like, wow, someone who's under 60 who is actually talking to me about issues in their in my constituency, like, it, you know, it's easy to be cynical about politics, right? Um, but the thing is, it's like often policy decisions get made, by the people who clamor about them the most. Mm -hmm. And when everyone's over 60, is already sitting on a house they've paid for, and is now worth, what, 10, 20, 30 times what they paid for it, most people aren't worried about their housing situation, not really. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like people just stepping up and talking to their elected representatives and saying, look, this is a real actual problem that is affecting my family, our community, and our city, and something has to be done about this. And like... They're all, they're, like I said, there's not a single tool, but there are a lot of different ways to at least kind of sort of put the brakes on this, you know, more, more investment in cooperative housing, where you're not owning where you live, but you do have stability.
0: Nels, I want to thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about this issue. It's a big one. Uh, thank you for your input. You're listening to Dollars and Cents, uh, along with Blair Manton. I'm Elaine Scollin from Sands & Associates. Get a financial fresh start. Easy to do. for a free consultation and to find an office near you. Thank you, Nels. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scull, and along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. So people are often very hesitant to find out about debt options, uh, like bankruptcy, because, you know, the number one fear is, what do I lose? What do I have to give up? How true is this, Blair, uh, that you do lose all your assets? Because that was my first thought. I'm going to lose everything right now. I've got to figure this out. And outgoes everything but that's not true
2: no absolutely completely untrue really nothing could be further from the truth so uh, when you go through a bankruptcy there's automatically property that the government says you know there's a public policy purpose to the whole bankruptcy system and it's to get you back on your feet it's to help you start again without burdened by debt And if you were to have everything stripped away from you, you know, your furniture, your car, your tools, all things like that, how would that help anybody? You've got no ability to come out and earn income and turn yourself around. Um, So definitely, there are exemptions that kick in. And they vary by province. Um, But in BC, there's a number of exemptions that actually result in just about everybody that files for bankruptcy keeps just about all of their assets.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about what those exemptions are.
2: Yeah, so the really key ones that you know almost every client uh, will will claim, uh, essential clothing and medical aid. So any clothes in your closet, but even more important than that, anything that you need for a medical reason. So I had a client this morning who has a CPAP machine. So for someone that has sleep apnea, that's an absolutely life-changing type of a machine. And she was concerned that if she files for bankruptcy, am I going to take and collect this $2,000 machine and sell it off to pay her debts? Right. Absolutely not. It wouldn't wouldn't matter if that thing was worth $100,000. Whatever medical um, apparatus a person might need, absolutely exempt along with all of their clothing and, and their personal objects.
0: And that's a valid concern because it is something very specialized, mm-hmm. some cases very customized for that particular person. Yeah. So I can see why that would be a concern.
2: Yeah, so, so exactly. So some of my senior citizen clients, they're, again, very concerned, well, how am I going to be healthy if I have to lose my medical aids? You're not. If you have to file for a bankruptcy, we can deal with the debt. You're going to keep your clothing. You're going to keep your medical aids.
0: What about your household stuff, like my Mm -hmm. furniture, my television set, my stuff like that?
2: Yeah. So I have people ask me, well, you know, when does the person come to the door to start carting things away? Yeah. Um, Or even before they get into my office, they tell me, well, the collection agent threatened me yesterday that he's coming tomorrow. And that's why I booked the appointment today, because you need to stop this guy from coming to my door.
0: Because sometimes people get in trouble because... Because of the purchases that they've made, whether it be the the new furniture or the new stereo or whatever, yeah. so that would out- automatically be a concern.
2: Yeah, and what the province of BC says is regardless of whether you're in bankruptcy or not, um, there's legislation that protects you for all of your personal assets, all of your household furnishings, they're exempt up to a value of $4,000 now four thousand dollars might not sound like a huge amount especially right if you've right? ever done an insurance claim you know you're looking at replacement value and what's yeah. going to cost me to buy it again but the lens that we use as a trustee and the province instructs us to use is what if you had to sell it that's the value that I care about if you had a garage sale your new couch that you might have bought a year ago for a thousand dollars what do you think that's going to fetch at a garage sale
0: you could but sometimes barely get a hundred dollars yes, for it.
2: Sometimes fifty bucks. Yeah, I've, I've shopped with my mom before. She'll bargain a dollar mug down to fifty cents again and again. <laughs> exactly. So you know, <laughs> you've got to think your goods are worth more to you than they would be to you know a disinterested third party, so to speak, who doesn't know the history, um, who doesn't know you know where, where the goods have been. Um, so really, if somebody does you know an honest inventory of what's in their household and really figuring out if we were to sell it, what would we get? I've never had a client in more than ten years of practice that actually had more than four thousand dollars of household furniture. If we look at it in that lens, the, the garage sale value.
0: Yeah, that's that's really an important, important, important issue to to bring up. It's mm-hmm. not the replacement value; it's what you'd get if you had to sell it.
2: Exactly right. Yeah.
0: Now, what what if I'm uh, what if I'm a, a craftsperson person or, mm-hmm. or or a tradesperson? What about that? And I've got yeah. tools.
2: So again, another huge hesitation people have is they think if they go and see. The The trustee, well, you know, say you're a drywaller, for example, and you've got a bunch of hand tools that you need, a bunch of materials you need to do your job, and you think if you go to deal with your debts, you're going to have to turn over all those and they get sold. As we talked about earlier, completely the opposite is the case. The whole point of a bankruptcy or of a proposal is to get you back on your feet, to allow you to earn income, to be a productive member of society. So the government gives an exemption, and it's much bigger than even for household goods. So it's still based on a garage sale value, but it's ten thousand dollars.
0: Okay, because tools are very, very expensive for mm-hmm. uh, tradespeople to have to purchase in the first place.
2: Right, expensive to purchase, but again, we're talking about right. a resale. So, you know, that person might have spent twenty or thirty thousand dollars or more on tools over the years. Um, if we go and get those tools valued, or ask the person to do that again on a garage sale at Craigslist type of a basis, very rare to have greater than ten thousand dollars of tools. And in the situation where if someone might have more than $10,000 of tools, well, then we just work out. We say, okay, the first $10,000 is free and clear. You're allowed to keep that. If you have more than that, then we'll say, okay, let's go on a payment plan. You got an extra $500 worth of tools over the course of the bankruptcy, pay $100 a month for five months, and you'll keep all of those assets.
0: Okay. Next thing, and probably one of the most important things, if you live on the Lower Mainland and you, let's say, are a a private contractor and you're working all over the place, Mm -hmm. is your vehicle. Right. So do I lose that? Because that doesn't make sense to me.
2: Yeah. So again, the whole principle, let's get you back on your feet here. Now, there's also some reasonableness that comes into it. If you've got a brand new car that you paid cash for and it's worth $20,000, no loan against it, and you owe $10,000 in debt, well, I'm sorry, you're allowed a partial exemption on that vehicle, but you don't get to keep all of it. What the province has said is there's an exemption for a vehicle of up to $5,000. So if you have a vehicle worth less than $5,000, and if you have to go into bankruptcy, you don't lose that vehicle, you don't pay anything extra, nobody can ever seize it from you. And the $5,000 value is not if you were to, you know, um, try to market it for a year, get the best possible price. That's you looking at a black book, a wholesale and auction value for the vehicle. So, you know, as long as it's not a very new vehicle, quite often it's going to be worth less than than $5,000.
0: Okay, so that sort of covers the idea of this vehicle is finance then too, right? You take that into consideration.
2: Yeah, so that, that's a great point because you know someone listening might say well I've got a 2015 car it's worth a lot more than $5000 let's say it's worth 20 but I owe 25 on it for yeah. example you know what happens there you said if it's a $20,000 car you might take it well what we care about is what's the net equity so if there's a loan against that vehicle if the car is worth 20 and there's 25 owed against it if we were to t- try to seize that car, we'd have to pay $25,000 to the loan against it. So it wouldn't make any sense. So we really look at what's the value of the car. We take off the value of any financing that might be secured against it, and then that's the exemption that you're allowed. So if you had a car worth 20000 there's 17000 owing on it, your net equity is $3,000, and that would be below an exempt value. You wouldn't pay a dime more to keep that in the c- over the term of the bankruptcy.
0: OK. The other thing is lots of folks have RRSPs Mm -hmm. uh, in all different shapes and forms. How... How vulnerable are they to having to be given up?
2: You're only vulnerable, essentially, if you don't know the rules. And sometimes you end up being either you know counseled or, or given bad advice to do something that's actually against your best interest. So the government protects RRSPs. They protect them up to 100% of what's in your RRSP with a slight exemption that if in the last 12 months before you filed for bankruptcy, if you were putting money into your RRSP, the government says, well, that money has to come out. Now, oh, okay. just about any time, if someone's coming to see me, they stopped contributing to their RRSP long ago. They're trying to pay their debts every month. They're trying to live. So there's very rare cases where we're taking any of an RRSP. But the thing that breaks my heart, and now I'm happy we're having this conversation, is where people have no idea there's a protection for RRSPs. And sometimes they'll have a collection agent that calls them, and the collection agent says, you've got no option. You must cash in these RRSPs, or I'm coming to your house tomorrow, taking away your furniture, all these things we've said that can't happen. If you cash in your RRSPs, you lose all the protection.
0: And the other, almost the flip side of that is, before I seek help, before I get some information, before I come and see you, and I've got this debt issue, I think, oh well, I'll just, I'll just get rid of, the, I'll just cash mm-hmm. these out to pay that. Right. And then I've, I've lost. I've lost that as well.
2: Yeah, you've liquidated your retirement and it almost always doesn't solve the problem.
0: And let's just w- add to that, you don't have to.
2: You absolutely don't have to before you cash in a dollar of RRSPs to pay tax or sorry to pay debts, talk to a trustee.
0: Yeah, because 9 times out of 10 or 110 times out of 10, yeah. you get to keep what you've already put into that.
2: That's exactly right.
0: You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scalin along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scallen with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services that we talk about on the show, sans-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation or to find an office near you. With us on the line right now, Melanie Schroeder. Now, Melanie, interesting woman. She's a, re- a registered professional counselor and a chartered professional accountant. So kind of both sides of the brain. Is that right, Melanie? That's right. (laughs) You're a partner at K.H. Burnaby Chartered Professional Accountants, so uh, we're going to hear from Melanie in terms of her uh, philosophy about life when we talk about these very uh, big issues and significant ones that are really dollars and cents kinds of issues. But, of course, there's so much emotion and so much uh, energy put into these things as people... you know, take them on. Uh, this one, this segment is all about tax implications when a relationship ends. Melanie, so glad you could join us.
3: I'm really happy to be here. It's you know, you really hit the nail on the head when you talk about these issues. Uh, so many people, there's a lot of grief, there's a lot of energy around a relationship ending. I mean, whether it's something you've chosen to do in a divorce, which you don't always choose but sometimes you are making that choice but that doesn't make the grief any less sometimes um, and you know we don't always want to deal with the the tax or the money side of things but it has
0: to be done right absolutely mm-hmm. and it's really both some like two extremes right you're talking about something very emotional and heartfelt and all kinds of feelings attached to it and yet mm-hmm. we're talking about taxes like oh man how, <laughs> putting those two together right so let's right. yeah so let's get started what are some of the ways relationships can end that will have tax implications
3: Well, we talked about, you know, you talked about them both, Um, both divorce and death can have tax implications Um, and separation. You know, people sometimes don't realize that separating for a period of time can have tax implications, especially when you start making payments back and forth between spouses.
0: I know you've got lots of experience. Can you talk about folks that have or you know their experiences as they've gone through this kind of situation? It must be very difficult.
3: Uh, it is very difficult. I mean, it's quite often you start having, I mean, people when they're ending a relationship, um, let's talk about divorce for example, sure. or separation. You know, they're ending a relationship. They're not ending it because they're best friends typically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're ending it because they're they're having a lot of conflict. They're no longer getting along. Um, Sometimes there's children involved, so that adds an extra layer. And, you know, they really have to now try to figure out how are they going to potentially separate assets, separate debts. Uh, What are they going to do if, um, for example, one spouse was supporting the other one? And what's that going to look like going forward? And then you add in the emotional layer to that, and you really can create... Uh, quite an explosive situation, really.
2: And, and Melanie, just wondering about the division of, of assets and debts. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things people should, should keep in mind? You know, from my point of view as a trustee, th- this can be a minefield if you know you're giving preferential payments to one creditor or not the other. Uh, what are some some good coaching for folks to, to keep in mind, even if they don't need a trustee, but they're going through one of these these types of events like a divorce, for example?
3: Well, when you talk about debt, I mean, I think something that is really important for people to consider is that you know, when you are married, you're you're responsible for your spouse's debts regardless, right? And and splitting up doesn't make you not responsible for them. So you really need to consider that that if you have something like a mortgage, just because you split up doesn't mean your name is no longer like if you were a joint um, signer on the mortgage, you're still responsible for it. Right. So you have to start taking those things into consideration or now like you're splitting assets, you're splitting debts, you have to look at, are you going to be able to afford to make payments on your debt afterwards? What's your income going to be like? So you really have to sit down and start to look at your budget Right. You know, Are you going to be able to afford your car payments, your house payments, your rent payments if you don't own a house? What were your debts like? Did you have credit cards? And some people don't, you know, one spouse was the person that was taking care of the money. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times you get that where you have, you know, one spouse that's looking at the, you know, taking care of all of the money issues. And the other one is like, I just never even took care of that.
0: What kind of advice do you give couples that are in that position, Melanie?
3: Uh, that are in the position of, of one person has been taking care of everything? Yeah,
0: they're going through a divorce, and there's been a real division of um, responsibilities for it. And there's the the one person that hasn't taken that responsibility on, let's say they're doing, you know, looking after another mm-hmm. piece of it. What's What's the kind of support that you can give them?
3: Well, they typically have to, you know, very be very gentle with themselves first of all, and very kind because a lot of times there's a lot of shame wrapped up in that that they've. uh, A lot of times it's the the woman as well, you know, and there can be a lot of shame, along with the idea that they've allowed themselves to get in the position where they don't know anything about finances, Mm -hmm. and they've allowed themselves to be in this position of now. You know, they can't take care of themselves and they don't know anything about finances. So typically my advice is to be gentle and just to learn mm-hmm. and to, to not feel badly about it. it. It is what it is, you know, like that's, that's how it was and it's okay and it's what served your purposes and you were part of a partnership where that was the agreement and there's nothing wrong with that and now it's just changed.
1: And
2: Melanie, I'm wondering from, you know, even just the, the nuts and, and bolts of filing tax returns. So mm-hmm. if you've been married for a number of years, you were filing jointly and now you've got to tar- start filing separately. What's the the implications of that of starting to file separate as, as opposed to joint? Is it, you know, worse off, more punitive, you wouldn't get the same type of credits? You know, how can someone kind of assess what the impact would be?
3: Yeah. And in, in Canada, we don't, it, it's a little different than in, in the U.S. where we, you know, we file as married or single, but we file our own tax returns. So we don't file, it's a little bit of a different language. We don't mm-hmm. file joint. Yeah, joint's or, the wrong
2: words. Yeah. Just yeah as so married it, as opposed to single, yeah.
3: That's right. Yeah, yeah, married as opposed to single. But, you know, there definitely are different tax credits. So if you had someone who wasn't earning income, definitely the spouse who was the higher earner will lose those tax credits. So they'll start to pay some more tax. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you had two people who were earning income, You know, earning a reasonable income, let's say over you know thirty to forty thousand dollars of income, their tax returns would remain largely unchanged. Um, Something that's important in terms of tax, if you do have one spouse who was dependent on the other and they start to make support payments, it's really important to get a separation agreement in place right away, because uh, support payments are only the two espoused are only deductible uh, based on certain criteria. And one mm. of those is having an agreement in place that's um, gone through the court.
2: Right. And, and I, gone
3: through the proper channels, right? So, yeah. um, and that's a good way of still splitting the, the income and taking advantage of the, the basic tax credits of the lower income spouse.
2: Yeah, and I've definitely seen the impact of that, Melanie. I've had people mm-hmm. in my office that have said, Yeah, I made all these support payments, but CRA disallowed them, and now I've that's got a right. debt. And, you know, knowing what I know now, I could say, Well, you know, did you have a court ordered super, you know, uh, separation agreement that specified right. the, these payments? If so, you're probably okay. If not, CRA is going to win here.
3: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. And sometimes you can go back and do it retroactively and, you know, get this great big deduction. But, you know, the problem is where there's a lot of animosity and people take, you know, two or three years to come out with these agreements, then you're losing out on these credits. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really important for people to just to try to do their best and move forward without letting their, you know, letting their emotions get too much the better of them if they can, especially where children are involved.
0: It sounds to me because, and I'm, you know, I'm the, I'm the rookie here, Melanie, in terms of knowing how to do things well when it comes to this kind of a situation, especially with tax implications Mm -hmm. involved. It sounds like the one of the best pieces of advice is to get professional help to get somebody like yourself, who, who's an accountant who could help me sort of maneuver my way through uh, these kinds of issues
3: hmm And an accountant, and I would say, uh, you know, you want to speak with a lawyer and you want to speak with an accountant and maybe even a counselor. There's a really great thing out there now called collaborative divorce, and they you typically have a team. And because having the emotional support is really, is really important as well. Like we've just been talking about, this is a hugely emotional time, you know, and you need someone to vent to, like, it, it's just, you need the emotional support. There's no doubt about it. You're going to get angry with your spouse. You're going to get angry because they're looking after their best interests and you need to look after
0: yours. And at the same time, dealing with real hard and fast numbers, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, money owed, money that needs to be paid. So it's, again, it's like two extremes at the same time, but you've got to be able to take those head on. That's right. Yeah. And what about planning or avoiding some of this stuff? What's the best way to, what's a step to take towards that? Well, I probably
3: counseling <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and open communication. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, really just talking about things with your spouse and, and also just making sure that you're um, always aware, you know, of of where you're at and what your responsibilities are. You know, because a lot of these issues can come up because you're not... Self-aware.
0: What about uh, resources that you think we should be o- we should know about and be aware of?
3: Um, there's some great resources actually on the Canada.ca website um, around deductions that are allowable for support payments, and also the other one that's really worth mentioning is when you transfer assets back and forth when you split up, because there can be capital gains issues, capital gain tax. Um, but they're really well explained on the website and again you know just make sure that you speak to an accountant even if you just get a couple of hours of advice
0: and is there some things that I could do to, to have in place uh, before I get to this situation where, you know, like in sort of not pre-planning for a divorce, I don't mm-hmm. want to imply <laughs> no, that. No. But I'm like, hmm. <laughs> yeah, bad question. I know. I'm sorry. But in terms of just being able to look after yourself, because sometimes we get lulled into letting somebody else look after us, mm-hmm. men or women, uh, but things that we can do to make sure that we are looked after well.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think if you start looking at um, maybe having agreements before you get married and, again, just having those conversations with your Mm -hmm. spouse on an ongoing basis and having the agreements about who's taking care of what and um, making sure that you know what's going on in your marriage financially,
0: you're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scalin along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Hey, listen, for information on any of the services that we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation or to find an office near you. Now, we're talking about if you're in debt and you've got a whole bunch of things, you're a busy person, you've got a whole bunch of areas that Concern you on a regular basis. There are some what we're going to call sneaky credit killers mm-hmm. that is really important to pay attention to. So these are things that could impact or hurt your credit rating. So basic mistakes that folks make, uh, and here's the key: they are basic. So mm-hmm. it's not like you're alone in thinking this. Uh, we've got a list together of the top five mistakes that can hurt your credit rating, and. Let's just start at the, at the first one. Mm-hmm. Why is leaving unpaid cell phone bills or paying your bill late on a regular basis top of the list, Blair.
2: Yeah, this one was so hard to believe for me and so surprising, but it's actually the number one reason why when people go and seek a mortgage approval, sometimes it comes back with, hey, your credit rating isn't good enough, we're not going to approve you or we're going to give you you a non-prime rate. Uh, The number one reason for that is unpaid cell phone bills. That's
0: crazy that that would impact a mortgage.
2: Yeah, and it's often, it's the smallest expense each month, maybe it's less than $100 or somewhere in in around there, Um, but just by paying that late every month, cell phone companies, I don't know whether it's a conscious decision or not. I feel like it is a conscious decision. (laughs) They are the quickest of any creditor you'll ever deal with to suddenly throw you into collections. Mm. And once you go into collections, you get the incessant phone calls. But even more than that, you get the negative ticks on your credit report. So every debt that you have is going to say, do you pay it on time? Do you pay it late? Are you delinquent? So on and so forth. As soon as you've missed a couple payments on your cell phone bill, you can bet... Dollars to donuts, they're going to be every month putting a tick on your credit report. If that persists for months or a year or longer, it can be a you know a negative history that's going to be a bit tough for you for you to outweigh with even the positive things that you're doing.
0: And in this day and age, one feels like you have to have a cell phone. Mm-hmm. So once you've got those uh, checks against you, yeah. It's tough, right? It's tough to come back from that, even to get onto another plan or mm. but mortgage, that's that's surprising me, right?
2: Yeah. So the big takeaway here is, you know, don't assume just because it's a small amount that it's suddenly inconsequential. It's absolutely not. And again, the the practice of the cell phone companies is they will hurt your credit quickly. And against a collection tool, they they tell you this, we're gonna send you to collections, it's gonna have an impact on your credit, and right. they will follow through on that.
0: Okay. Too high a balance on my credit cards?
2: Yeah. So there's a metric that's uh, called credit utilization. And it's really simple. It says, you know, if you've got a $1,000 limit and your balance is consistently at $750, you're at 75% of utilization. So what is your balance and what percentage, you know, are, are you using? And credit bureaus work a little bit differently in that sometimes they'll pull information in the middle of the month when the balance is high, or sometimes they'll pull it at the end of the month when you've just paid it off. So, you know, sometimes you might say, well, this is never a problem for me because I My balance might be high, but I pay it off every single month. Right. But if the credit bureau has pulled that information from the middle of the month when you were at, you know, 90, 95% utilization, that can be a negative thing. Um, The reason for that is creditors start to think, well, if you're bumping up against your limit consistently, you know, is this a risk factor that perhaps you're not managing things? You know, credit cards are not supposed to be, you know, permanent, you're in debt, you carry a balance all the time. Mm -hmm. So seeing that you're carrying a balance on one or multiple cards uh, that can be, you know, a high percentage of that limit it, that can be a risk factor for creditors and that can have a negative impact on your credit score and your rating.
0: See, my brain tells me that the opposite would be true. It means, mm-hmm. oh, you you maximize your credit, you pay it off each month, mm-hmm. you're a good risk, right? That yeah. I can up your limit and you're going to pay me back every time.
2: Yeah, there is a magic number here. So they, you know, okay. they, they want to see activity and we'll talk about that in a bit. You know, having a card that's dormant, it doesn't do anything for you. Right. But the magic number is 50%. Okay. So, you know, if you know you're going to be charging $1,000 each month, you wouldn't want to have one card with a $1,000 limit. You'd want to have maybe two cards and you split that spending up so that you don't go past the 50% utilization.
0: Okay, so that's really the only thing that I can do to control it.
2: Yeah, it's it's just basically keeping your, your balances down as much as possible. And it's not a case you'll be, you know, perfect credit every second of your life. You know, things will go up and down. Right. But again, th- to the point of the whole segment, these are kind of the sneaky things that you might not think about. Think you know, about. you might not think because I'm paying it off every month. You think you're doing everything right. But if that balance goes very high during the month, you might be getting a negative tick on your report.
0: Got it. Uh, what about closing old accounts?
2: Yeah, this one, talk about counterintuitive, because many times when, you know, I have couples in my office and they say, you know what, we went to the mortgage broker and we wanted to clean up all our credit beforehand. And what we did is we looked at all of our accounts, there were a few of them that we weren't using too much anymore, and we closed those down. Yeah. And what they told me, I had this just last week, is the mortgage broker told them that was about the worst thing you could have done, because what happens is you lose all of the history for those accounts. So as oh. soon as you
0: close them down, it's like they never existed. So it's not about just paying them off mm-hmm. or paying them down. Yep. It's closing it. I yeah. no longer want this. Right. So if, okay. you're,
2: if you're concerned, you don't want to show that you got, you know, five credit cards out there with very high limits, even if there's nothing on there, well, then get them to lower the limits, get them to bring them, you know, down to $1,000 or, or something like that. But again, if you close the account, you might have paid that card religiously for years and years. You never went above the 50% utilization. It is the Gold Star on your credit rating, you close the account, you lose the history.
0: That is. And that is counterintuitive. I agree. Doesn't mm-hmm. make much sense. Yeah. What about co-signing debts? I know that we've we've helped folks out over the years, giving them a hand if they've gotten, uh, you know, just need a bit of a help, right? Yeah. It's a good thing to do. Makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You just not have, always. Yeah,
2: you have to go into it with eyes wide open. And the way I say is, you know, never let anybody else ruin your credit. You know, it's your credit. If you're going to ruin it, do it yourself. But uh, when you co-sign a debt, you're agreeing to be responsible. And I'm sure you know this, Elaine. If, if you co-sign for somebody, it's 100% of the debt. It's yeah. not 50-50. It's not some fraction. And if that person who you have co-signed for starts to miss payments, you know, unless you are very diligent in making up those missed payments or paying it off in their, in their stead, um, you could have an impact on your credit. Credit report as well, even though it's nothing that you've done other than put your name on the dotted line saying that you've been responsible. By doing that, you've given the opportunity that your credit rating could take a hit if things go unpaid.
0: Now, I know this is a little bit, I mean, it's connected to this, but if you got an idea of what I could do, how I could help somebody, what's the best way to help somebody, because I'm not, I know I'm not the only one out there that wants to give folks. bit of help.
2: Yeah, so I generally say the best way you can help people is by giving them the tools, you know, the information that they need to help themselves right so if you can give an introduction to you know a licensed insolvency trustee if you can say I've heard the show dollars and cents where Blair and Elaine talk about debt stuff all the time it's a free consultation and I have a meeting a lot of times with you know it's it's often you know young young adults and sometimes their parents are there with them and the parents have said you know we're prepared to pay off the debt for this person we should all be so lucky Um, but in that meeting I'll be saying well wouldn't it be better if we can work out a consumer proposal we can compromise the debt down to what's reasonable if you want to help them out help them pay off the proposal but let's have some responsibility in this situation let's face Mm -hmm. things head-on and you'll save money for the overall family but you'll also teach the young individual okay you know this is not a get out of jail free card there's still consequences but it doesn't have to you know be life-altering a proposal you can pay off relatively quickly and move on
0: i should have talked to you (laughs) should have talked to you or gone to the website before and uh number five applying for more credit
2: Yeah, so I think a lot of people understand this, that if you go out and you're shopping around, you know, say for a vehicle, for example, uh, the more times your credit rating gets checked, um, that can have a negative impact on your rating. So if you go to a dealership and they run a credit check and then you go to another one and they run a credit check, so on and so forth, all of those things are logged. And if you have too many of them in a short amount of time, It hurts your rating because creditors get nervous. Are you going all around town applying for credit? Is there a case that's all going to be granted? It's all going to get filled up. And then the existing credit is not going to get paid off. So they get very nervous if you're, you know, they see a lot of hits on your credit, meaning checks. People, you know, basically checking your record to see if they're going to give you credit.
0: And that's really them just looking at it without knowing any background information as to why you're doing it or how you're doing it or... Mm.
2: Exactly. Yeah,
0: that doesn't feel very good. Like, I don't have a whole lot of control over that, do I?
2: Right. Well, what you do have control, and and this is what we recommend, a very clever strategy here, is if you are going to shop around a few places, say it's a car, you're going to go three or four different places you go and pull a copy of your credit report yourself when you pull it yourself there's no impact you're allowed to do it at least once a year um, sometimes more frequently if you choose to pay a fee for it but pull your report yourself and bring it physically bring it to the people that you're looking for financing from and then it's only if you decide to go forward with the deal then get them to check your credit so you have one hit rather than multiples
0: blair manton sands and associates it's easy to access him and the company uh, by calling 1-800-661-3030 that's for a free consultation and to find an office near you the proceeding was a paid commercial program Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.